Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. Uh, as normal, we'll be running through a few different articles that have caught my eye this week and just using them to touch on a few ideas that we've been seeing develop over the last few years. So, the first article is in the Journal of Science and Medicine in Sport and first author Bowler, last author Cox. It's called Sports Dietitians Practices for Assessing and Managing Athletes at Risk of Low Energy Evadability. And I, I like this in, for a lot of reasons. So the first is it is trying to kind of formalize and see how everyone in Australia and then in sports dietitians manages relative energy deficiency. Do we all work out what the energy evadability is? Do we all do the same blood tests? Is there a little bit of a uh, disconnect between what might be recommended by certain sort of guidelines and people working in research that may be slightly ivory tower and people what people are actually able to do on the ground? And is there very little point in people starting to run away with bright ideas and expensive tests if no one's actually doing them? Uh, and the, this one really just comes with a nice answer, which is yes. At the moment, whilst everyone has a good understanding of this movement onto low energy availability, um, this was a sort of questionnaire talking to sort of 55 sports dietitians. And whilst there was lots of solid understanding there, it was interesting that there was clearly limited access to the sort of diagnostics that uh, the, the, certainly the authors thought would be the kind of minimum, um, whether or not that would be using particular questionnaires, um, whether or not it's the access to DEXA scans, access to bloods and hormone profiles. And in fact, the most common thing that was viewed was uh, menstrual function. And it's clearly everyone's still kind of stuck uh, with this idea of, uh, this sort of the female athlete triad part of, uh, sort of relatively energy deficiency and struggling to kind of move away from that or certainly move away from it in day-to-day -day practice, uh, which is where it is hardest to kind of make changes. It, and uh, so, yeah, interesting article. The other bit that was interesting again to see is just that, that difficulty when you're working within a sports team. A lot of talk about difficulty engaging with coaches and, and actually how, how can you do a calculation of energy availability if you can't get your athlete to do a accurate uh, food questionnaire, which is tricky. And if you can't get a coach to give to trust you enough to give you a accurate training program. Uh, and actually what, what's manageable in the time frame that most of us have. So it was kind of reassuring in a way to see that uh, the sort of struggles that I think myself, see my colleagues coming up against was, was very similar to what uh, diet, dietitians in this group also seem to be coming up against. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed that and I thought it was a very, very, very honest and transparent article on what is the current state of play. Uh, the next one I looked at was a article, uh, again, in Journal of Science and Medicine Sport, and this was looking at sleep, and it was sleep duration and quality are associated with nutrient intake in elite female athletes. 
So we, we touched on last time an idea that actually if you want to improve weight loss in non-athletes, increasing sleep seems to be effective. And again, something that you can kind of push towards uh, your patients. This is more looking at uh, almost from the, the other direction. So it was monitoring of 32 players uh, and it was seeing the impact on their sleep um, uh, of changing the, sort of the diet. Um, and they were sort of professional footballers, female, and essentially what, what they found was that nutrient intake is associated with sleep and may contribute to sleep problems. And whether or not that was the wake time after sleeping, increasing with carbohydrate intake, um, et cetera, et cetera. So rather than uh, what we saw last time, which was actually if you want to reduce the food intake, increase the amount of sleep, this was if you've got someone struggling with sleep, maybe we need to be looking at what their intake is and what exactly the breakdown of their, their diet is. So uh, again, interesting interesting work just on how how complex uh, what you're trying to do with the athletes is. It's not simple and it, it's multifaceted work. Um, and unfortunately, again, I mean, it just it shows again and again, there's no one size fits all. You, you've got to really dig in and get to know your athletes. Now, when, whenever we cover sleep, I always sort of feel that it's, it's useful to kind of go back to probably my the, the, the most impressive article on sleep and probably the most re referred to one when it comes to sleep and in particular it was talking about sports injuries in adolescent athletes. Now this article was called Chronic Lack of Sleep is Associated with Increased Sports Injuries in Adolescent Athletes and first author was Milowski, last author Bardudakas and it was Journal of Pediatric and Orthopedics back in 2014. Now, this is the one where you'll, you'll often hear it kind of quoted that athletes who slept on average less than eight hours a night were 1.7 times more likely to have an injury than athletes who slept for more than eight hours a night. Now, of course, there's going to be a little bit of simplification here. Yes, it was only uh, sort of 112 odd athletes, but it's it's a, been the kind of quoted paper and, and reproduced um again and again so definitely worth having a read of and and i found it really powerful with coaches this one it, it makes it very clear that actually you need to pay attention to sleep and this this is how much impact it will have on your the guys that are doing the training and especially with with adolescents and uh people who have competing interests such as exams and and oh you can just burn the candle at both ends you can't you'll get injured and this is my proof um, so I like this paper a lot. Uh, the other paper that's probably worth mentioning is just the 2021 uh, VGSM kind of consensus paper on sleep and athletes and, and how important it is. And, and that has a few tools on kind of sleep hygiene and again, how to start having the discussion around sleep and how you can manage it around a, a training load. So the next article we were going to uh, is on... Uh, it's a mixture of things that, that are fascinating. It was effective concurrent training on body composition and gut microbiota in postmenopausal women with overweight or obesity. First officer uh, Dupuis, uh, last officer Boisseau, and this was published in Medicine and Science in, Sport, in Sports and Exercise, March 2022. 
now, I really like lots of areas which are, are, are fascinating and, and changing at the moment. Uh, we've got menopause and the, the fact that our views are all changing on that quite a lot at the moment. And, and most doctors and physicians and, uh, are starting to become more and more uh, aware that actually we can we can use uh, things such as HRT for longer, it's certainly um, non-oral options of estrogen HRT. I don't have the risks that we, we may well once have thought of. We need to be thinking about testosterone levels in postmenopausal women. Uh, and we can keep going with HRT longer. The, this idea of as short and as uh, low as possible seems to be going. So uh, the menopause, an area where there's, there's a huge amount of change in the what is how what is the best way to kind of treat symptoms for this very normal uh, part of, of life for half the population. Now, the ne this was then adding in gut microbiota and, and the ideas about, well, how, with the gut microbiota, is it something that we is a controlling factor that we're missing is it something we could we could give some probiotics for or as in last week give a bacteriophage for and actually this will ease symptoms in some way and how the this way of starting that is saying well how is it change when we don't do anything to it and then moving on to what happens when we give probiotics etc um unfortunately i couldn't actually get more than the abstract of this paper, try as I might, um, and it, it, it didn't really tell me anything new. I thought it was a, a fascinating area, and I'll be keeping an eye out for what I'm sure will be more articles from the group on this. And essentially, what they said was there was no change that they found in alpha diversity, but some interesting changes in microbiota composition, which... Uh, Again, given they were just doing 16S rather than whole genome and they weren't doing functional work um, without the paper to really dig into what they mean by that, I was left with thinking, well, okay, that, that sounds as though you have not really found anything uh, particular, especially just with an N of 17. But I'm fascinated by what you were doing um, and, and hopefully uh, this is just a precursor to some bigger publications in more, more accessible journals. So, um, and I suppose whilst I'm on that one, the, 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 the thing it did remind me to do was just, again, with, with microbiome articles, it's just reminding ourselves what are the difficult things to get our heads around and why, um, I've sort of joked before about why does every mi good microbiome paper have a mathematician in the author list? And uh, what for this one, because we're talking about alpha diversity, I just reminded myself again, um, going back to this time, actually to a nature communications paper called Establishing Microbial Composition Measurement Standard with Reference Frames. Just a reminder of how difficult it is to, to, to kind of say for sure what is going on with alpha diversity. So remember, we often talk about different uh, different changes within the microbiome is there an increase in abundance and number is there a increase or a change in diversity the diversity in the different types is it alpha diversity so the number of different types of variation within one sample or beta diversity we've taken a couple of samples and beta diversity is the difference between those two samples um, and there's a number of really good papers out there just saying why this is really tricky and why there's so much bias possible. And there's particular measurements that 
people should be using. And so this paper is a real example of, unless you can dig into it and see, well, what measurements did they use for the alpha diversity? And are they the ones that these, these journals recommend to ensure that you don't fall for these kind of common errors? Um, I'm sure they probably were, um, but uh, it's difficult if you can't dig into it to be sure. Measuring vitamin D, are we any good at it? And the short answer is no. Uh, and if you recall, we, we touched on this in the past with it being described as one of the trickiest things to measure. There's such lab-to-lab -lab variation. Uh, there's such person-to-person -person variation. Like any hormone, is there variations in times? Is there other factors that make a difference? Is there a better measurement of vitamin D than the one we use? And this article was just saying, look, we're looking at bioavailable vitamin D rather than total vitamin D. And we're saying, does this correlate better to bone marrow density in 53 uh, patients? And it did. And then this is reflected in, in other work. And certainly you get the feeling that, okay, maybe maybe we're going to move away from total uh, 2,5-hydroxyvitamin D um, at some point. But... If, like me, you're, you're sort of working in uh, a financially limited or non-research sort of setting, then you're going to go for what people can do and what you can afford. And the advantage of, of the sort of total vitamin D we have access to is it's done a lot, and so it's done well by labs. Um, but we always just remember to take it with a pinch of salt. The next paper was a nice one looking at uh, relative energy deficiency uh, in sport, red S. And this was looking at lightweight rowers. And it was a more holistic view rather than how do we diagnose it? Uh, do, do we do enough bloods to test it? How do we, is there a pathway for management that we can all agree on? This was more looking at a perspective of living with it. And it was... Uh, a view from using questionnaires from 12 different uh, sort of ex mostly international lightweight rowers in the UK and it was a really nice summary of just again if you you, you sometimes think oh is is it reds are, are we are we over generalizing this i don't think anyone any clinical case i've seen makes me think that but you do sometimes hear that but you read something like this and you realize just how all-encompassing uh, this REDS is and how complex it is and, and actually how much of a long-term effect it may well have on people. Um, whether or not we know that it probably has a long-term effect on your bone marrow density, um, although that there's, I've not seen much that makes that very clear, especially given the fact that the, the umbrella term is relatively new. But the, this article going through the long-term impacts make, does make, certainly make it sound as though um, much, of the, uh, much of the impact, like the uh, poor emotional regulation, social difficulties, difficulties to maintain relationships, low mood, etc., um, drag on for, for quite some time. So it was called Lightweight Rowers Perspectives of Living with Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. Uh, first officer Gilbanks, last officer Phil Bay, and it was Margot Mountjoy as the, the middle author. Um, and that was mostly out of these at University of Oxford. And the last one uh, was a slightly more random one. This was actually just on the back of uh, thinking about algae as an option for uh, a kind of protein alternative 
for people that may have sort of uh, some green worries about where where is my way coming from and what is the impact of um, obviously certain farming practices and on the climate and on the environment. And I thought, well, the algae is a very interesting one. But then I wondered, is there any, um, is there much data on use of insect food, which is also sort of high in fat, high in protein? And, and has anyone used that um, as an alternative to see see what's available? Uh, and I couldn't find much, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> the best thing I found <clears throat> was called The New Challenge of Sports Nutrition, Accepting Insect Food as Dietary Supplements in Professional Athletes. First officer Placitino, last officer Monakis, and it was published in Food 2021. And it was more, uh, it did a nice little summary of, of what's known so far, which I really enjoyed. And then they moved more on to the, well, actually no one really knows because we can't get people to buy in to start to get the data until we can figure out whether or not they'll actually eat any of this. Um, so... Uh, this sort of summarised the fact that actually it did seem far more acceptable and, and to be honest, that would be my expectation that uh, athletes, if they think it will help, will stick pretty much anything in their body. Um, I mean, they're competitive people. Um, they're, they're not going to worry about it being an insect if they think it's going to get them over the line first. And that was roughly what, what, what seemed to come across in, in this, uh, this sort of questionnaire study. Um, it was on 61 professional athletes um, in, in Italy. So... I'll keep an eye out to see if anything actually showing whether or not as a protein what the sort of breakdown is and whether or not it's something that could be a, a, a used as a standalone supplement and if it's been compared against other other supplements. Uh, I couldn't see it. I haven't found anything as yet, but uh, I'm sure it is going to be coming. Um, uh, it's uh, It's now seen as a takeaway food in London. So once once it's it's there as a food that's clearly sellable, there's a market for it. So soon, if there's a market for it, there's funding for research and there'll be research coming out. So I'll keep my eye out. Hope you've had a great week. Um, hope you managed to get plenty of training done today and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>